Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christina. I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. It's my turn. I picked a story called And of Clay Are We Created by Isabel Allende, and it was translated, this version. It was also, we think, in some kind of junior high textbook in English, so there's all these notes. But anyway, that's beside the point. Don't cry. I don't hurt anymore. I'm fine, Asusena said when dawn came. I'm not crying for you, Ralph Carley smiled. I'm crying for myself. I hurt all over. The third day in the Valley of the Cataclysm began with a pale light filtering through storm clouds. The President of the Republic visited the area in his tailored safari jacket to confirm that this was the worst catastrophe of the century. The country was in mourning. Sister nations had offered aid. He had ordered a state of siege. The armed forces would be merciless. Anyone caught stealing or committing other offenses would be shot on sight. He added that it was impossible to remove all the corpses or count the thousands who had disappeared. The entire valley would be declared holy ground and bishops would come to celebrate a solemn mass for the souls of the victims. He went to the army field tents to offer relief in the form of vague promises to crowds of the rescued, then to the improvised hospital to offer a word of encouragement to doctors and nurses worn down from so many hours of tribulations. Then he asked to be taken to see Asusena, the little girl the whole world had seen. He waved to her with a limp statesman's hand and microphones recorded his emotional voice and paternal tone as he told her that her courage had served as an example to the nation. Rolf Carley interrupted to ask for a pump, and then the president assured him that he personally would attend to the matter. I caught a glimpse of Rolf for a few seconds, kneeling beside the mud pit. On the evening news broadcast, he was still in the same position, and I, glued to the screen like a fortune teller to her crystal ball, could tell that something fundamental had changed in him. I knew somehow that during the night, his defenses had crumbled and he had given in to grief. Finally, he was vulnerable. The girl had touched a part of him that he himself had no access to, a part he had never shared with me. Rolf had wanted to console her, but it was Asusena who had given him consolation. Yeah, so I, I only found the story because uh, I, for some reason, watched Titanic on Netflix. And Titanic. Titanic. And, Every um, time the boat sinks, it can't sink. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And I was still at the edge of my seat. But uh, I thought to myself after watching it, I wonder, this seems like one of those events that has probably been fictionalized a million times. And when I looked for like a short story, I just had, I couldn't find anything that was like not fan fiction type, you know, self-published online type thing. I'm sure there is something out there. Oh, for Titanic? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Where like, where anybody had done anything close to what the movie did, which was just, you know, imagine a couple and in this setting jack and rose fan fiction yeah you know which is bizarre but like titanic itself seems like one of these extremely rich events where you would think it's like any kind of like war you know we're all familiar with it anyway i couldn't find anything it was a very cursory search but i ended up down this rabbit hole and uh i came across this story so i don't know if you would know and i didn't but i looked into it afterwards and this was a real disaster and there was actually a little girl who who became the face of it and there's a photo of her like a real photo of her oh i never looked it up oh, oh it's it's messed up and it happens pretty much this way she became not only the face for the disaster itself but also the face for the government's handling of the aftermath which it sounds like you know she was one of dozens and dozens of people that didn't get saved but she was one of these people that literally clung on for several days while her face was streamed around the world and they kept saying like we're gonna help her and it was like whatever response kind of got bungled like like it did in this story where, the, where they're asking for like a 
pump. And it's never really clear whether that would have saved her, whether that was really what they needed, you know, or if they had gotten the pump, whether she would have died from like other injuries, whatever. But this is real. And it's interesting because there was like a reporter, I think, who stayed pretty close to her and was who knows whether he had this same emotional arc, right? I imagine at some point that's where this narrator comes in and starts imagining things because the the girl's name, I think, has changed and everything. I mean, it says at the the top of the story, which is taken from this textbook, right? This selection is fictional, but it's based on a real event. In 1985, a volcano erupted in Colombia and it talks about like all the mudslides and 23,000 people were killed. But everyone was focused on this 13-year-old girl. And in this story, her name is Asusain. So that part was really interesting to me. I think jumping to my takeaway, there's probably millions of these types of real events that you think about repeatedly. And you probably think about them because like all types of stories, like they're ripe for more storytelling, right? I think we usually get like the footnotes of these kinds of horrible things that happen to people. And if you're still hung up on it, it's because you know that there's emotional stories behind the scenes that you didn't see fully play out, you know? And they don't have to be tragedies. I think a lot of times they are but you can think about like any like major like news story and just wonder to yourself what would it have been like you know I say that it doesn't have to be a tragedy and yet that's all I can think about right now you know but it doesn't have to be on a scale where 23,000 people died it could be that 23,000 people witnessed a volcano erupt and what was that like like outrunning it but everyone survived you know whatever it is like we can all kind of think of something that we've seen and then imagine what it might have been like and then this is just like one of those ones where obviously if you saw it in real time especially you just cannot escape the image so by the end of this i was not totally sold on how it was packaged like the point of view is so bizarre to me that's part of my takeaway yeah yeah i mean maybe we can jump to yours then but the point of view is from the newscaster's wife and it sounds like they work together on some level but they're married or they're dating they live together and one day this disaster happens he gets called out to the field and she watches him do his work on TV. And then she at one point goes into the station and works alongside the other journalists that are like pumping his feet in. But then at the end, she's helping coordinate the pump, which is just not something journalists should be doing. But by the end, I was like, whose story is this? Like, it's the point of view of the wife and the newscaster has the biggest change. But the main character, who's like the impetus for the story, this little girl dies. It's not her story either. It's just a very, very interesting point of view. And then we don't even know that it's like this first person story until I want to say it's the third paragraph, the second page for us. It says, when the station called before dawn, Rolf Carly and I were together. It's like, what? And then at the very end, there's this paragraph and it's addressed to him. You are back with me, but you are not the same man. And it's this paragraph about how eventually you'll be, (laughs) it says, I know that when you return from your nightmares, we shall again walk hand in hand as before. And I wrote, yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) the whole story is about how this changed him in this like profound and pivotal way. This is a man that was detached from his own emotions, which I identify with a lot as a former reporter, like to do do your job, you watch horrible things and you just like don't think about them because they're not happening to you. You're witnessing them, you know? But there's something about this that like he talks to this girl and like the scene that I read, something in him is apparently breaking where he's able to get in touch with his own past, whatever. And it's an emotional journey for him. And then at 
the end, the narrator's like, well, you know, I know when you get over this, like things will be good again. I'm like, no, something has changed pivotally. And she almost seems jealous that it happened without her. She, there's a, there's a, like a line where she says um, something about like where this little girl is able to unlock something in him and they're able to talk about things that like even he has not talked to his own partner about. It was bizarre. I, I don't know what to think about it by the end. This is what this is the trouble I get into when I read a story and I send it off before I finished it. There's things about it that are like interesting and good, but this point of view like really threw me. What did you think? That's what my I kind of connected to in this story was that so you notice like you pointed out the I narrator doesn't show up until the third paragraph, which is like the second page as it's printed here. And then uh we get little things. I remember it was in one of our earliest, it's like episode five or six. We did uh Edgar Allan Poe's the Telltale heart and that's told in the first person but there was a moment in it where he's relating what the man in the bed was thinking he's like he must have been thinking this and then it switches from instead of from his point of view from the narrator's point of view of he i thought he might have been thinking of this too he was thinking about this and there's like this slippage right you get this like third person psychic interior uh point of view even with a first person narrator it happens here where i don't know much about women he concluded talking about Rolf Carley and he thought she's already too old for dolls like we're getting reports of what he was thinking you know what he was in his head there was a uh, a section where it kind of it moved like that post story like telltale heart same thing where it moved from outside to inside where it starts off even from that enormous distance I could sense the quality of his weariness so this is still the narrator's point of view I could sense it right so different from the fatigue of other adventures he had completely forgotten the camera now she's kind of ascribing things he had completely forgotten the camera like does she know that she doesn't have access to like what he's thinking in the moment he could not look at the girl through a lens any longer the pictures we were receiving were not his assistants but those of other reporters so she's kind of ascribing to him feelings and um, emotions that you would in fiction like if I write about a character in third person like close I'm telling you what this third person point of view is thinking even though like I wouldn't have that access in real life and this is kind of of what she mentions near the beginning this is on page three the third page of this is um i came to realize that this fictive distance seemed to protect him from his own emotions so that made me think why does this story have a first person narrator why not just tell it in the third person why not tell it in the first person from rolf carley's point of view like what is the point of this and we talked about it in some episode and i can't remember why or which one it was but i think you said something like we're talking about like making choices Choices about like whether or not to do a third person or first person. You're like, or you just feel it through. You like, you start writing a story and it just comes out in third person. Or it just comes out in first person. Sometimes you have an intuition about like, and I think part of that intuition is like an intuition about how far away you want to be from the emotions, right? Right. So because Rolf Carley's story is about digging through layers to get to his emotions, like breaking down those layers, standing at remove from it from a first person narrative talking about him and his journey gives kind of reflects that distance like if we were in his head from the beginning like it was a first person like moment by moment sensory kind of feeling interiority thing we would get those emotions too quickly possibly Mm. right so this is kind of like maybe she didn't think about it in those terms but she's also mirroring it as the narrator she's like i watched Many miles away, I watched Rolf Carley and the girl on the television screen. You know, a screen is 
like the ultimate third right. person, right? You, you have no access to anything, but there, like watching, I was near his world, like meaning in the, the television studio kind of space or like the broadcast area. I could at least get a feeling of what he lived through during those three decisive days. And then later she says, the screen reduced the disaster to a single plane and accentuated the tremendous distance that separated me from Rolf Carley. Nonetheless, I was there with him. So she's able to project herself through the screen into him. And that's kind of the mirror of what happens in the story. Because that's later on when we get that slippage from outside to the inside. And just she's she's telling us her projections of what he's going through. And even when he finally gets to like his breaking point and it says, uh, in those hours, he relived for the first time all the things his mind had tried to erase. Asusena had surrendered her fear to him and so, without wishing it, had obliged Rolf to confront his own. By the way, that might be like the only time she refers to him with only one name instead of Rolf Carley. It's just Rolf. That's another distance maker. It's like his full name versus like it's yeah. his, his persona. That's his TV name, right? right. Rolf Carley on TV. But now it's intimate. It's Rolf. Right. Yeah. And then we're in his thoughts after that. We're like, Katarina materialized before him. At last, he could weep for her death and for the guilt of having abandoned her. If you step away from the story, if you're not experiencing it in the moment, you think, well, how does she know that? You might have to assume that he eventually tells her or he talks about it later and she can piece it together. But in the moment, there's no way she knows what he's doing inside of his head. But we're living inside of his head in that moment. We finally arrived there. Now we're part of his emotions. That's the excuse I make for that point of view is um, that it is a way for us to start from the outside and get inside his head through this course of the story. And to kind of um, what my takeaway is, I guess, is the end of this kind of long disquisition is, um, you know, we talked about sometimes you approach a story with an intuitive sense, like this should be in third person. If you want to kind of break it down, I think what our sense is, is like how far away we are from things, you know, are we going to witness it from another character's point of view on the events? Or are we going to witness it from the character who's experienced? Experiencing the events is a matter of perspective. It's distance. And I think a lot of times when we're taught or, you know, you read a book about fiction writing, you're given it's first person or third person. Those are your choices. But you don't have to, like that is not the end of the story. There are gradations. There are movements. You can move from first person to third person to third limited, like this story right. does, where you're in third limited experiencing his interior experience, totally left the narrator behind. And it doesn't matter because the reader will follow you if you lead us there. Right. And I think that's that's something that writers are often, you know, you go in the workshop and people are like, well, you switched point of views. You can't do that. And it's like, this is one of these rules that writers really glom onto. They really want to follow this rule, but it's not a rule. It's not hard and fast. Readers are very forgiving. As long as you lead them there, you can go there and the reader will follow you. Right. Point of view is not rigid. It's not strict. Right. This is a, another feature of fiction. This is what fiction does. It lets you jump into people's heads and see their thoughts, see their interior experiences. Anyway, that was my takeaway from this was that it was all that about point of view. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And I agree that like this is even an example of what you said, which is you can break these rules if you lead the reader there. And even by the end with this like last paragraph that I read that, where she's addressing yeah. Rolf. I think you could get rid of that paragraph, but yeah. it works. 
right? It works. It's fine. It's just like when I look at this all together, I I wonder what the thought process was. I think yours is a good example. You know, what what you're describing as a point of view that lets us kind of zoom in from the outside, that works. That could be how this writer came up with it is my point. And then I also think about like, you know, the fact that this was a real story. She might have very much envisioned a story where she viewed this newscaster and saw in him a change. Because I imagine as a viewer, if this if this part were accurate and this and there were this newscaster that sat with this girl as long as he did yeah the tone of the whole broadcast would have shifted and if it was as captivating and like widespread as it sounds like it was at the time everyone would have watched it even just like you can imagine his like perfectly like gelled hair looking like shit four days later like there's a physical change he becomes like tired and all this kind of stuff what she describes is where he forgot the cameras were there he's like no longer playing to the cameras he's no longer acting his role and if you're watching this on screen, you're like, what happened to my my guy? Like, he's supposed yeah. to be down there telling me what's happening, but he's not even paying attention to me anymore. Yeah. You notice that, right? Right. And so there's points, too, where you mentioned that you can kind of safely assume or you'd have to assume that what the narrator is telling us about his internal thought in that moment is something that he would have told her later after the fact. But I don't think it's that big a leap. To. You don't have to have like been told. I think like uh, we can even take her summary of what he's thinking, details included, because she probably knows about his sister. She knows about like his childhood, maybe in Austria, parts of it. Um, yeah, and she she, she can kind of yeah piece this together and say like I'm watching him become frazzled because I know him. I know like this is the part where he's thinking about this, and it could like be projection, but even that works because we know that she knows who he is. Versus had this been a normal viewer writing about their favorite newscaster, right? So maybe she's just got this benefit of of knowing a few more details about him and then like those kind of leaps about what she's assuming he's thinking in that moment. Yeah, projection is a good way to describe it because I think that's what yeah. fiction always is. Yes. No matter where you are, it's always projection. Right. You're projecting something onto somebody. I think that's the way we experience life in general. When you meet somebody, yeah. you're projecting what you think they're feeling in the moment. You're projecting what you're even projecting a little bit of your own feelings. Right. And this is just the best example point of view wise for you to poke holes in that you know yeah. or it's most obvious that she has to have been projecting because there is a literal screen and thousands of miles between them yeah yeah so i i i wasn't like enamored by this rolf guy like i like stories about journalism i feel because you know because i care yeah. about that but um so i thought that part was kind of like interesting because like you know the, the story is always about the the girl and like there is a story for the reporter here too especially because like the whole public views him one way and then like the facade just falls away like you said he's no longer playing to the cameras and then just knowing that this was real and that this poor little girl is so so she's like suspended you can cut this if you want i don't care but she's literally suspended with her head above the water and her legs are pinned underneath and for a while they think it's the house and then that bit about where she says in this story that it's like her brothers and sisters are holding on to her that part is real oh god they figured out that like a relative actually had like her dead aunt i think it was it wasn't like both her siblings or something but it was like a portion of the house roof and then like someone literally had their hands around this girl's legs like dead underneath and that's like what like just the the particulars of it are like horrifying so i read stories like this and i'm just like it's terrible but you know you're swept up in just the horrible circumstance itself that's why i'm so surprised that like the titanic story i mean we we watch it for jack and rose kind of but the story is three hours the movie's three hours the Last it's about Titan- hour? That's what James Cameron likes to say is this is about Titanic. It's about the boat. Yeah. The last hour is that just the sheer terror 
harder as everybody tries to get on a lifeboat. Yeah. And when you look at like the Jack and Rose story, you're like, okay, they hung out like five times. Sure. It's like a great story or whatever, but. See, can I put this on the pod? Maybe I'll cut this, but I want to put this out there in public. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't matter if Jack could have fit on that door. Yeah. Right. That's not the point. He had to die at the end of the movie. He Mm -hmm. had to die. Not only Mm -hmm. so that Rose could live the life she wound up living. That was the point. She just got away from it. He didn't matter at that point narratively no. as a character as a part of the narration he he had to die <laughs> yeah and as a character he's a strong young man he thinks he'll survive he doesn't know he's gonna die so he's not gonna try to get on the door it doesn't even matter he tried once eh, no nah, rose yeah. is fine i'll stay in the water yeah no it's the jurassic park thing people are so caught up in whether or not they could they're not asking if they should no it's a story and jack was a device sorry that's right, that's right. so he should not so back to my takeaway, my takeaway being that there's likely tons of events like this that have kind of stuck with you that you've been gripped by. I remember as a kid, I was like reading everything I could about JFK getting shot. You know, I think we all have a phase like that. Oh, I was the, the Boxing Day tsunami. <laughs> yeah. So there's all these little things that stick with you. And like I said, maybe maybe they aren't tragedies, but they probably are. <laughs> and if you're just like swept up by them, there's probably an entry point there for you to write something. If nothing else, I don't don't necessarily think that these make like for the best stories because i don't know that like you have to do a lot as a writer to like come up with a premise or anything you know what i mean it's kind of right there and you're just kind of trying to execute but if it's something like the titanic or something that happens like more recently like that's just a very easy way to kind of shoehorn yourself as a writer into the bigger conversation there's there's certain things like cli-fi right now like climate fiction that's this like overarching trend right but there's going to be someone that writes a fiction story about the these Hawaii wildfires. That could be you. Yeah. That's hard to do. It's hard to do because you're just, in a sense, just like capitalizing on this kind of grief. But if it's part of like this larger narrative, I imagine people that are swept up by it have something to, to actually say. And you can say it through fiction. Go back to episode 110, the This Way for the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, for more comments that we had about how to write the story about uh, <laughs> large historical events. I just think it's worth exploring. If you think about it, it's worth exploring. Oh, yeah. It might not be your best story. Yeah. If it's stuck in your head, yeah. then yeah, get those stories out. Yeah. Just just try. And we already kind of touched on your takeaway too, right? Oh, yeah. My takeaway is point of view. Yeah. I had my uh, rambling disquisition in the middle of it. So Yeah. So hit rewind if you would like to refresh. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash why is this good podcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.